So what does it take to make your first million, to scale a business, or to get your first high street listing? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself, and I ask industry leaders and entrepreneurs on my award-winning podcast, Success is in the Mind, exactly that. From high-growth startups to scale-ups and businesses about to exit, I am joined weekly by the founders of businesses like Octopus Energy, Genies, Thursday Dating, Habito, Cano Water and Hera, as well as many more. From sportswear to tech, energy to consumables, hear it here firsthand from those entrepreneurs innovating and disrupting. Join me every Wednesday from 8am. Give me an example of when things didn't quite go to plan. Oh, there's loads, like loads and loads. Uh, I don't know where to start. Has anything ever gone to plan? No. Um, <laughs> so there's a theme here. There's a hinge befriending people on the internet. There's pubs. There's being fires. This is not the podcast I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. On today's episode of Successes in the Mind, we've two-thirds of the founding Flexa team, Molly and Morris. From an idea in a hackney pub after Molly was fired from one of her jobs for asking for flexible working hours, to raising a quarter of a million pounds bang in the middle of a pandemic, the growth of Flexa has been an exciting one. With the world of employment becoming ever more flexible and the importance of company culture and well-being at the top of everyone's agenda, did Molly and Morris predict the curve or was it just getting lucky? I asked them if gifting shares to a co-founder is the right thing to do if you can't afford to pay them, how important is emotional intelligence to entrepreneurs and founders, and what are the best tactics for not getting fired? Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first, Molly and Morris, co-founders of Flexa. Molly Maurice, welcome to the show. Hiya. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Hi, guys. Look, Molly, you're, you're clearly hyper-intelligent. You went to Oxford University. You've done a lot of stuff whilst there. You were the treasurer of TEDx. You were on the water polo team. You were the captain of the women's rowing team. You then graduated. You then got fired, and then you went into business. What did you expect to be doing when you graduated from Oxford Uni? Not getting sacked. That was definitely <laughs> something I wasn't expecting. Um I feel like my career history is a bit like Henry VIII's wife, like divorced, beheaded, survived. So I'm like, redundant, sacked, redundant, left, voluntarily. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, classic sort of adolescent overachiever, I thought that I had to do everything and get to Oxford and pick up every single society and everything. Um, quickly realised in my, my kind of mid-twenties that that was not necessarily the right way forward. But I definitely expected to have a successful career in investment banking and have made a, a lot of money by now and that hasn't happened <laughs> <laughs> and that hadn't happened because you I know, and we'll go on to the reason for the business later but I suppose the reason that you got fired initially as far as I could tell was because you asked for ironically flexibility in your job is that right yeah that's right so I've had an autoimmune disease since I was 18 which means that sometimes I can't walk it used to be quite frequent back then probably about once a week thankfully now due to flexible working working your own hours it's probably only about twice a year so I'm much much healthier now than I was but um I kind of struggled through for about 18 months in equity research and um it's actually the second investment bank the first one they cut the equities division I was made redundant got hired somewhere else and then um they sacked me because I put in a request to work from home one day a week to stop taking sick days because um, I was still able to use my brain and work. And um, they sent me to an occupational health therapist um, who said to me, mm, I'm just going to classify you as disabled here to avoid any discrimination, because he said he knew what often happened. And 10 days later, they called me into a room and sacked me. And thank God he did classify me as disabled because they wouldn't have had to pay me off if that wasn't the case. Oh, good. So you did sort of take them as far as you could and get what you could out of them. Yeah, of course. They paid for my silence, though. I can't name them. <laughs> <laughs> no excuses on this just yet. But look, Morris, looking at you, you were obviously brought up in, in Dublin. You went to the University of Dublin, actually, to study business and law. Again, something that has worked quite well, seeing as you're now in business. But before that, you're in the betting world, am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked for Betfair for about six years um actually going way back i wanted to be a vet even though i grew up in dublin which is like unheard of because generally like a 
more of a countryside activity in Ireland, tried to be a vet for about all of about three months. You realize it's absolutely knocked out for and completely useless and retrained to do business and law and then became an accountant for my sins, which is about as exciting as it sounds. Um, and then worked in betting. Yeah, so I worked in Betfair for forever. <laughs> it must have helped, though. Come on, the fact that you're now running a business with Molly, you must be able to pick up, I'm assuming, the books, look at the legal aspect of it. Did that help you in forming Flexa? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, the main reason we set up Flexa was to stop Molly getting fired all the time. Like, yeah, so. I wasn't allowed to work for other people anymore. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guys meet? As a couple. Uh, yeah, we met on Hinge. Yeah. Yeah. You're joking, did you? 20, Amazing. End of 2017. Yeah, we, we've been a couple now for four and a bit years. Um, yeah. Well, we met on a dating app. We did. There you go. We had some boys from a dating app Thursday on here a while ago. Sadly, you didn't meet on Thursday, but you did meet on Hinge, which is interesting. Now, how does it work, how does it work in terms of working with your other half? Do you find that stressful? Do you find that positive? We answer this separately, will we, in case we have different I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I personally find it fine, but I'm interested to hear how you find it cool. <laughs> uh, I think it's a good thing. Um, we've, we find it's, it's very interesting when we've been raising investment. Um, a lot of investors are very biased against couple founders. They tend to kind of project their own relationships onto you and think, well, I could never start a business with my partner or we'd be no good at that. We wouldn't possibly want to bring our personal lives into our professional lives. And so they assume that you're the same, which is often meant then they're like, no, we're not comfortable investing. You're more likely to break up. Whereas actually, I think it's kind of the opposite. Of like we've had yeah. a history in our relationship of dealing with conflict as any relationship has. It's not that we argue a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's any relationship. You're used to resolving issues. And then when that comes into starting a business obviously you're constantly overcoming hurdles and I think if you've started a company with somebody that you don't know as as well um whether you know there are loads of founders that never really met properly they just became founders together they're far less well set up to be able to deal with conflict and overcoming obstacles and keeping going I think than, than a couple is um it does mean we never switch off ever I will be at the pub. Oh, Flexa. We'll be at dinner. Oh, we could do this. Flexa. <laughs> Constant. Um, wake up in the morning. Oh, the slack. Flexa. Great. It's just, it's, it never ends. But um, I, I, that's a good thing from a business perspective. Bad thing from a personal perspective. It's funny you mention that, because isn't that, Molly, where you founded or at least started the business? Now, I'm assuming if we just had to look at when you started the business, was this after a, t- a hinge date? You were in Hackney Pub, you came up with the idea for Flexa? Or was there, was there more to it than that? We were very fast. We were very fast, like day five. Yeah. We should start a business together more than anything else, actually. That was that was the dog, I think, actually came in about day five. Um. <laughs> so how did you come up with the idea then, apart from the fact that you didn't want to get fired and you couldn't work for anybody? So it was Morris's idea, not mine. And um, we were chatting about how rubbish job hunting is. Morris was thinking about leaving Betfair. Yeah. wanted to maintain the same level of flexibility that you had. I was thankfully working at a flexible company and hadn't been sacked yet. Um, so I was also... <laughs> time <so. laughs> Time was ticking. It was coming, but not yet. <laughs> no, that one I left voluntarily. Um, but we were chatting about how rubbish it is to actually find the companies that offer flexibility. Um, Morris said, well, surely that's quite an easy thing to build where we just bring together the people that want flexibility and the companies that offer it and we verify them somehow. Um, and I was like, yeah, I guess. But like, I I never thought of myself starting a business and I don't think you did really either. No, and- but then I think over a couple of weeks, it's kind of ticking in the back of our minds. And then um, you were thinking about leaving anyway without necessarily anything lined up. Yeah. Um, and I, so I bought a whiteboard off Amazon and gave it to you. Yeah, the whiteboard. The whiteboard <laughs> is still here, uh, sitting over there. That was the wow. What a gift that is. I know that was the moment of reality. It was like, actually, we'll do this properly. It was like, here's an enormous whiteboard, and I've bought this. So if you don't do something, I've wasted my time getting you the whiteboard, and that that was it. And then we went to the pub and started like literally sketching like what this thing would look like. Hold on, stop me there. So you took the whiteboard to the pub? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Down to the Chesham Arms. Enormous whiteboard. Uh, a smaller pad. We took an A3 pad of paper and some felt okay, tips. It's better. It makes sense. That does make sense. So like all good relationships, it was just the two of you. And then you decided to plug someone else in who went by the name of Tim. He was your, essentially your CTO. You guys couldn't build a website. You decided to gift shares to this individual. Why? Yeah, we were in a kind of funny position where like we were willing to put some cash in to get stuff off the ground but not like absolutely go hard at it so the only realistic way to get like a really really good technical co-founder good cto was was to give him some equity um and we were pretty lucky with tim in that like we just met him off angel list not hinge not hinge not hinge, <laughs> not hinge. <laughs> i've not heard angel list before so, so explain to me what that is uh it's like a startup community i suppose mm. it's kind of like where investors and startups and people looking to work in startups and all of that sort of comes together it's like a really mixed use platform of investment opportunities it's like a job board it's where people will go to look for co-founders it's kind of a hodgepodge of startup stuff startup stuff yeah and i met him for coffee and within about two minutes i was like oh, if we get this guy, he's going to be really good. We're going to have to twist his arm because we were so early stage. Yeah. Uh, and then luckily he said, yeah, cool. And yeah. He came on board. And we'd met some proper spoofers before that as well. Such spoofers. Unbelievable spoofers. Yeah. But you believed in this guy, Tim, so much. How many shares did you give him? What was the kind of value of the business at the time? And how did you work out? And I suppose, Morris, this is probably your line of interest. Where did you, how did you find out how much the business was able to gift him? Did you value it based on your accountancy expertise? Did you just go, here's some here's some equity let's do something yeah at that point we basically said here's here's 15 percent of, of bugger all but it's eventually yeah but eventually <laughs> it might be worth something if we all stick at it and i think okay. like anything like it's how much is a piece like how long is a piece of string or how yeah. much is the piece of string worth you're like well 15 percent seems about fair but you want someone to be actually encouraged you don't want to like lowball them it's kind of pointless um so we kind of came to that amount. And then at that stage, like the business was just a concept. It was a slide deck. So, you know, it wasn't that meaningful. But yeah. I think there was enough there to to capture, to capture his interest. I think when you start a business that, uh, when you have a co-founder come in that early on, like equity has to be pretty significant because it's a big punt, like deciding mm. to spend a lot of time, even though we were all, you were contracting, I was still working mm. part-time. Tim was working because he'd actually exited a previous startup that he sold. Um, to Oliver Wyman and he was still working so to get him to dedicate his spare time to it like you have to be a proper co-founder when you get you see these jobs advertised on LinkedIn where it's like co-founder and the business has been going for like two years and they're offering mm. someone about two percent like you're not really a co-founder at that point you're just yeah. in your leadership so when Tim came on board then it, I'm assuming it was pre any revenue or did you have some kind of transaction going through the business at that point well we didn't even have a website didn't even have a website <laughs> So it was literally like giving him a, a piece of paper. There was nothing. There was me and Molly and Molly and I in the pub. Wow. I mean, that he'd take some balls for Tim to to just go, yeah, not a problem at all. Did he have money to be able to keep himself going in the background then if you guys weren't paying him at all? He just clearly believed in both of you. Yeah. So he, as Molly mentioned, he'd, he had exited a previous business and he was on his own out at at the acquirer of that business so he did that as his full-time job but he knew he was he was kind of moving out of there so that was kind of his his backup but we yeah. uh, we took his spare time <laughs> yeah we didn't you know like any startup it takes takes a while to be able to pay yourselves and other people so you kind of have to do something in the background yeah. to, to keep yourself going so you guys have you've done a few funds but in october 2020 you did a quarter of a million pound Pre-seed. Just tell me about how you actually went about doing that. So I guess from a fundraising perspective, I'll probably answer it because I've sort of led on the face of it. And then Morris has done all of the actual useful financial modelling and pulling everything together so that we can put some evidence behind our projections. <laughs> um, so we went out to, it took about, I think about four months to do the pre-seed round. Like it was quite, maybe five, it's quite slow because um, mm. we had very early traction uh, the website was launched. We launched it in February. We had probably about 6,000 users, I think, with very limited spend on that. Um, we'd grown quite fast organically and about 20 trial companies. So we weren't making any money. It's a bright can of worms to open, but there's a real quandary for a lot of early stage startups. Sometimes it can be more detrimental to make revenue in the beginning than it is to keep free. Because um, once you start making revenue, that becomes the North Star metric. 
and you know you're not always prioritizing it um so he didn't have revenue at that point or maybe he tested it had about 500 quid. i think we literally had 500 pounds in the yeah yeah um, and that was just through yeah. testing like what may or may not work um we didn't know anybody we didn't have a network in that sense we just kind of reached out to people um and we got an introduction to key ventures who is the tiny vc that was the first money in we got another intro through somebody i used to work with to a um kind of super angel um and a couple of other angels came in as well. So that's how we kind of made up the quarter of a million round. But it was a real learning curve and a world that we had never explored before. Yeah, it's a bit of a slog. If you come from the corporate world, I think like we mistakenly thought we'll raise money quite quickly because there's obviously like, there's more money in the asset class than there's ever been. And there's loads of like 23 year old lads somehow raising millions. And I think we kind of came out going, well, we've got, you know, more tangible experience and better CVs than most teams you'll see raising money. I think we thought we'd raise quite quickly and we just, just didn't. Like it took way longer than we thought it would, mm. especially the first time around. It took way longer than we thought we did. We got there in the end, but it was it was yeah. a bit of a slog. And how long did it take you then to raise that quarter of a million quid? Four or five months. Four or five months. Yeah, yeah. four or five months. But then closing it was a different matter. Like actually like once the commitment was in and then we had to do all the legals and go through everything, which then took about another six weeks. Yeah, yeah. And then we did another, we did a, like an ASA bridge round at the end of last year. And then again, that was a similar length of time from what I remember. Five months. Five months. Yeah. All all in to get that done. Yeah. So you did your initial fund, you got your quarter million quid. It took a little bit longer than you thought. I'm assuming Tim had got the website up to scratch or at least nearing a level of completion. Or was that still very much a work in progress at that point as well? It's constantly evolving. Yeah. Um, It was... It was a working website. It does it did what we wanted it to do, but we launched as a job platform, um, which is quite different to what we became. So the website then was a job platform. People invested in a job platform. And then in March of last year, we pivoted to being more like Glassdoor, um, where it's like a top of funnel hiring platform that verifies companies and gets them discovered by hundreds of thousands of people for being a great place to work. So showcasing the information that's usually uh, not put up front in the hiring process. And then obviously, much to Tim's dismay, the whole website had to be redone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least he gets to keep his job and keep busy. In terms of why you guys pivoted to more of a glass door funnel kind of proposition, what was the reasoning for that? Because you guys did so well in funding it during the pandemic. Was there some kind of connotation there and reasoning? Yeah. Yeah, I think there were there were like dozens of kind of different reasons that all sort of eventually triggered the pivot. So I think the first one is that the unit economics of a job platform are pretty grim. Um you can talk a bit more about that because you're it's in charge of it. Just very hard to make job platforms work. You just need so much sort of candidate liquidity and it just requires millions and millions and millions. And it's not that it's undoable, like there's people doing it well, like Otto, for instance, um, but it's very, very hard going, requires a lot of funding. Um, so the unit economics are not phenomenal and yeah. trying to retain companies when their, when their North Star metric is, did we employ someone through your platform, is, can be quite cagey. So that was, that was part of it, definitely. The second reason was when we were listening to the companies that were signing up with us, they weren't necessarily signing up with us for the reason we thought that they were, which was to post jobs. They were signing up with us because they loved the kind of notoriety of being flexible that Flexa would give them and the employer brand element of it. Um, And so we were like, well, if that's why people are joining us, then we should probably start listening and see if we can adapt this to suit what their needs are better in the problem that they think we're solving better, which then kind of fed into the third reason, which was that the kind of recruitment and the market that we sit in we don't like saying we're in recruitment but ultimately kind of de facto we are um is it's been really really uninnovative for like a very long time it's still done in the same way there is a job you apply to it you don't know what it's like to work there and it's a horrible process and it's been like that for decades since since the internet facilitated it basically and we were thinking surely it can be done differently like why do these really onerous application processes have to happen? Why does the poor recruitment experience have to be like that? And actually moving up the funnel to being more about recruitment marketing and providing people with the information that they wanted suddenly seemed a lot more innovative. And our kind of acquisition of of candidates and companies, once we pivoted to that, it kind of skyrocketed. So it was clearly 
the right move in terms of solving a problem that we wouldn't have known was there until we'd gone out and built a job platform. It went quite well, but we thought we could do it better. Yeah, it's funny. Nearly every time I ever show a graph to someone of like almost any metric from Flexa over time, no matter what it is, there's this little line and then it goes, Whirr! and I always have this little thing that goes, pivot here, pivot was here. <laughs> yeah. It's just like that kind of changed everything. Um, but yeah, it's probably the best decision we ever made. Yeah, So many businesses, though, pivoted during the pandemic. Some worked, some didn't work. Your pivot evidently has worked. Now, at what point over the last sort of 24 months have you guys started to see significant growth in the revenue? Was it literally aligned to that pivot or was that just the profitability aspect? I'd say probably down the lines of the pivot, yeah, mm. from what I remember. It kind of had two upsides. It's, it saved us money and made us more revenue. It's a, well... You'll know better than me, Molly, but it's. I think it's a clearer sales proposition from the B2B side for us when when we talk about what we are. Like we're at the top of the hiring funnel. It's a glass door competitor piece rather than down here with the kind of Indeeds and LinkedIn's of this world. I think that's clearer for companies. So from a revenue perspective, things really started to kick off really from that time, which I guess was around April or May of 21. That's when revenue started to take off for us, I think. Yeah, but we were still kind of testing pricing and testing what worked until mm. September, October of last year. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of it's it's been in the last few months that it's been much easier to project what our revenue will become because pricing is consolidated. Like we know what we're doing now. <laughs> <laughs> That's helpful knowing what you're doing. But when you kind of went into it, do you think that element of naivety was useful in coming up with a kind of innovative product? Because so many people will have looked at it and gone, yeah, it just might not work for the reasons you've kind of alluded to already, uh, Morris. But do you, do you think that now, in hindsight, that was a benefit? I think so, yeah. Definitely. I think if we hadn't gone down the initial route, we never would have got to where we are now. Like, I certainly would not have conceived ever of what Flex has become when we first started talking about it. It just, I couldn't have conceived of it unless we'd gone down the sort of job board route and learned what people actually wanted on both sides of the marketplace. Yeah. I think we would have ended up with a totally different product. I agree. And like, we always, it's such a, it's such a wanky term, but the term like category creation, in a sense, is kind of where we've got to, but you can't really create a category without A, having known what it was before, but also have been removed enough from it to be able to, you know, reshape it and think of how it can be better. Yeah, I think there was upside in that none of the three of us ever worked in HR tech or recruitment or anything else. We just came at it from a totally different stance, a totally different starting point. Well, I was going to say that neither of you had any experience in this world whatsoever. And, you know, how did you actually fund yourselves in terms of living? Because it's not as if, I'm assuming, you had any savings at that point or did you i might be wrong <laughs> i didn't <laughs> i wasn't sure to answer that i was like well i'm not gonna ask for money <laughs> i was a pretty fortunate position i was I, I had a reasonably senior job um at betfair and had been on like a few equity schemes there and stuff that had gone really well so i was in a reasonably good position um you were still contracting though i was still doing a bit of contracting yeah. though yeah I did, I did some contracting for a corporate education firm when we first launched yeah. Um, Flexa for the first few months. So yeah, still a little bit, but we were, yeah, we were thankfully okay. Um, but I think it is, it obviously is a barrier for people if they want to give it a go. It's like, yeah. well, I have to keep working because I don't have the money. Like clearly, yeah. how, how will I do that? I was working four days a week um, and then doing Flexa on weekends and Fridays. Um, and then took the leap to go full-time on Flexa and then took up a bit of contracting on the side again, but I got sacked. <laughs> Honestly, what is it? Well, I genuinely, I'm into, I knew you got sacked once, but why so many times? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? I... I do think... Um, <laughs> Sorry, Castle Abbey's uh, actually is so funny. It is really funny. <laughs> um, and it's all, what's also funny is like you'll ask my old, my old boss at the company that I left voluntarily and he thinks I was great and he doesn't understand why I was sacked so many times. I, we still go for drinks. I can vouch for that. I've met him recently and he did say that. Yeah. That, is, that is true. So it's not um, that I'm a terrible, terrible employee. I, I, I don't um, necessarily hold my opinions back. <laughs> sometimes and so if I think someone's doing a terrible job then I will tell them if you tell your manager that then I can see why you would be sacked seeing as they're the ones that sack you yeah yeah I just don't think I, I think ultimately I it was much better that I started flexor and working for ourselves than it is that I 
continue to try and work for other people. <laughs> I'd say you would be a challenging person to manage. Yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my summary. You need a certain type of personality to manage you, I think. How do you manage your team, though? Looking at, obviously, Molly, you've had years of experience of, I suppose, uh, going in and out of jobs. You've got great great kind of oversight of multiple different industries. Morris, obviously, you were working for Betterfair. I'm sure you had teams underneath you of good size, actually, seeing as you were so senior. Does that help in terms of growing a startup team and managing people correctly based on that kind of cross-section of experience? I I think it definitely does, yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges for people starting a business, especially earlier in their careers, is that they haven't managed a whole lot of people. Like, I think it's probably the most challenging thing to do. I'd probably, like, of all the stuff I ever did, the most useful was managing a big team of people. Like, that's the most useful thing. It helps you both hire and hire the best people and, you know, keep them entertained and make sure they're active in the job. So, yeah, I think it's made a big difference. And then you getting fired everywhere probably helped. I learned what not to do. (laughs) But I also, like, from a management perspective, I knew that how I hated to be managed. Um, And I do think that you try and adapt yourself to the people that you're managing. Um, I also think it's actually... I think emotional intelligence is a really, really underrated skill in founders as well. And I think that that does actually make very good managers. And thankfully, I would like to say we're quite emotionally intelligent people. Other people might say differently, but I think it is a a skill that really, really helps with hiring and managing and especially managing a remote team as well. Yeah, I was just thinking that, like we think that, but maybe if you asked the team, they'd be like, they no, they're ourselves. Like, yeah. We can't stand them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting that your team's actually so remote. I mean, in terms of how you have coped with managing a remote workforce, because you know that must have been quite difficult to start a business, hire new staff that essentially you've never really met before, and then build a business, build a brand off the back of essentially Zoom meetings, right? It has been mad. We did all of our hiring through Flexer as well, which was quite cool. I think because it was through COVID and we didn't really have another choice, we wouldn't have, we now, you know, look back on it and it wasn't too difficult um, just because we had to do it that way. I think the way that what we've kind of looked for in, in early hires is for them to be very strong generalists and to be able to pick up lots of different things. I think in startups, it's a really, really important and underrated skill for the people that work for you is to make sure that they're able to pick up lots of different things. And ultimately, we also just hired on making sure that we got on with people and that they also shared an enthusiasm for what Flexa was trying to build because I think in the early days, they have to buy into your vision because it's not always easy working for a startup. In terms of having three co-founders, that is a luxury, right? Because so many people go into business on their own and they wish they had just a co-founder, a singular co-founder. But you guys obviously having Tim as well must be a real benefit to be able to to thrash out ideas. Has that been quite powerful more so than you might have thought? Definitely. So good. I literally could, literally couldn't run Flaxa by myself. You might be able to. I definitely would be able to. Let alone Tim. Well, there'd be no website. (laughs) We get nothing done. We just talk about dogs all day long. Like, it'd be rubbish. Um, having having more than one, and even better, more than two, I think makes a huge difference. And always when I meet people who are trying to do the co the single founder thing, I'm just like, how are you doing this? Like, they're always find, really stressed. They're so well. stressed. It's like, find someone else. Like, you can't, I don't think most people can do it by themselves. It's so hard. It's not just the, the like, burden of work. There's a lot of work, obviously. Like, there's a huge amount to do when you're fundraising, plus the product, plus building it, plus getting your customers on, plus working out what on earth you're actually doing. It's the emotional burden, I think, is huge. If you've got no one else to talk to that really understands it, you feel very, very lonely and isolated. And, like, even if I go to the pub, why do I always talk about the pub? I go to the pub with friends. Because you're a functional alcoholic, seemingly. You mentioned the pub about 12 times you started. I go to the pub with friends and they haven't, you know, they don't live and breathe flexor like we do. I just don't want to talk about it because there's too much to explain. Whereas if we're together, we can talk about it freely because we understand it. And if you're a sole founder, I'm sure you feel exactly the same when you try and talk to friends about your business. You just don't want to. Um, so you bottle it all up inside and I can't imagine that oh it's it's a you said emotional burden it's like emotional torture like it's just yeah. such hard going and to not be able to talk to someone else about it would drive me mad yeah and I, I say I never talk to my friends who aren't your friends I never talk to them about it if they say how's Flexa going I'll be like yeah good 
great. Yeah, like what? things are good. Stop asking me questions. Don't ask me anything else. I don't want to talk about it. Whereas you like to talk about it all day. It's just yeah. funny. But there you go. In terms of if you don't have a co-founder and you don't have anyone to talk to, how would you cope? Do you? I suppose you guys don't know how you'd cope. I don't know. I think I try and meet other people in the same position. Like that's yeah. like 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 a friendship group for for stressed co-founders. I, I know think that's a few what I other do. so okay, so yeah. founders like Ali and stuff have and, that have. Yeah that have befriended me on the internet. Um, <laughs> so there's a theme here. There's a hinge befriending people on the internet. Yeah. There's pubs, there's being fires. This is not the podcast I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they've reached out to me as a founder because, yeah, they, they want to talk to other founders. And often, like, because we kind of get, we post a lot on LinkedIn and we talk a lot on kind of podcasts and panels and things. And often you will get people reach out to you and say, can I ask some advice? Like, it'd be really nice to speak to somebody who's in the same position. And they're nearly always sole founders that will reach out. Mm. Um, so clearly there is a, you know, if you're on your own, you'll, you'll seek out people who are in a similar position because it's easier to talk to than, say, your friends or your family who aren't in the same position. So in terms of how Flexer actually operates, looking at it now, you mentioned dogs. I love dogs because on your website, you have this little dog icon for, for I'm assuming, employees that, that enjoy to have dogs in their offices. Now, you know, what, what, what criteria do you have in place for the Flexer 100? What allows an employer to class themselves as that? So we've built two different indices uh, with like hundreds of thousands of data points from our users that say what their flexible working preferences are, companies that do our quiz to find out how flexible they are, and also employees that we survey. So it's all kind of self-reinforcing to make sure that we understand exactly what the average in the market is. And then we assess companies based on like a two-stage benchmarking process. And it allows us to quantify flexibility, which normally is very difficult to do. The first stage is a HR leader or senior leader will do. It's a very objective quiz that's based on flexibility on location, flexibility on hours, benefits that add flexibility, you know, like work from anywhere schemes, enhanced annual leave, um, enhanced parental leave or family leave, those kind of things. And also key cultural indicators. So do senior leadership work flexibly as well? Um, is flexibility encouraged or is it put up with? Have you ever had to request it? Those kind of things. And a company has to score above 60 to be taken onto the second stage. And then we then survey internally with employees. So about 20 to 50% of a company has to do a very similar survey, but more subjective. Do you feel supported? Can you access everything? So that we know it's truly the case that that company is flexible. We're not just taking their word for it. And then the top 100 of those are ranked. Yeah, yeah. The top 100 of those are then ranked by the schools in those two bits fine and then you get your flexor 100 i get that that makes absolute sense and you alluded earlier molly to ali and i'm assuming you mean ali from juno who on your website has a testimonial the only reason i say that is because he was on the podcast now his is very much around employee well-being and employee he doesn't like the term benefits but employee perks i suppose you know culturally in businesses the way that organizations are changing over the last 24 months has been enormous right they've gone from people being in the office nine to five, people not being given benefits or perks, to full flexibility and really, really big incentives and perks. Do you think this is entirely stemmed from the pandemic or do you just think it's a cultural thing as Generation Z and millennials become more abundant in the world of employment? I think it's such a complex interweaving of the pandemic accelerating something that people already wanted but didn't know if it was okay to ask for. Um, and I think that the pandemic has normalized flexible working beyond needing a reason to access it. So it used to be that you put in a request um, and you had to have a reason for that request. Children, for me, an autoimmune disease, but that wasn't good enough. Um, or, you know, caring responsibilities or whatever. Um, and you had to have that reason. And then that reason was weighed up as to whether it was good enough. But loads of people wanted to work flexibly. They just felt they didn't have that reason. Um, and so because the pandemic removed the need for a reason and just allowed everybody to explore the idea of flexible working for themselves, it then made people realise, actually, this is the way that I want to work and I shouldn't have to justify it. And so then I think that snowballed into a total reframing of the future of work and the idea of choice in your working environment. I think job mobility has changed everything. The fact that we're no longer so, as in candidates are no longer so constrained by where they can work. 
it just changes everything because then you can say, well, I don't want that offer because I can work for 10 times, 20 times, 100 times more companies than I could last year. And then yeah. you, you, the candidate market is totally different to what it was. And if you ask any recruiter, they'll say this is the most candidate driven market in history. You know, it is what it is. A hundred percent. It's actually fascinating. And just a report that I, I found online from 100 global workers, 72% of them said that they were exhausted from working in a hybrid way, which is really interesting because I suppose what they're kind of getting at is that actually they don't know when to switch off when they're working from home because there isn't that specific stop button do you find that with your team having it so remote it's a good question i think our team like it all varies isn't it because yeah. when i think of like our head of sales who's awesome chris like he is done at four and that is it slack is snoozed you can't get him on his phone unless it was an emergency he's finished and that's it and he just has great boundary setting with it um, I think for other people, it just depends on their personalities. Some of them will just like keep working because they like to be night owls. I think it really varies person to person. Yeah. Um, in terms of like clients of ours, I don't know if you've seen anything and how they approach it. Yeah, I think it all comes back to expectation setting. Um, I think that the companies that don't say it's like it's okay to start at eight and finish at four, as Chris, for example, does. Um, and aren't as output focused and they're more about, oh, are you present? Are you available to answer my Slack at 9 p.m.? They're the ones with employees that will struggle with burnout and not be able to switch off. Um, but it's not all on companies. Like, I do think that there is also a level of personal responsibility for knowing whether you're the kind of person like me who's going to check your Slack at two in the morning if you wake up. Like, and I therefore turn my phone off because otherwise I'll check it. Like, there is a level of personal responsibility as well as companies. And it's about clear communication between the two. But in terms of efficiencies, I found it fascinating how 56% of people said they're more productive working in a hybrid way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think um, to steal the concept that uh, an Oxford professor, Carl Benedict Frey, used when we were talking, on a, I was talking on a panel with him a few weeks back, and he said that in-person and remote work are complementary. And I really agree with that because it, the in-person work can be very different to at-home work. You know, you're more likely to want to do very focused tasks with no interruption when you're at home and you want to do kind of collaborative brainstorming and innovative thinking and relationship building when you're in an office or, or meeting people. And I think that the fact that you can choose what environment you're going to be in to suit the task that you're going to do that day means that you can tailor your environment to be your most productive. In terms of self-control, that is, as you rightly allude to, something that so many people haven't yet fully grasped. Molly, looking back, I suppose, at you know, when you were 18, 17, 18, for instance, and you were diagnosed with the autoimmune disease, you, know, you had to have an element of self-control, I'm assuming, back then, which I'm assuming has now transpired into you going, actually, turning my phone off is the way I cope with this. Do you think that invisible, that invisible barrier has helped you cope with other things in your later life? Yeah, I think I had to get to know myself very quickly when I was probably a bit too young to cope with the fact that I was very, very sick and I didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, and I was going through like, it took a decade for me to get diagnosed. Um, so you're going through all of that and you don't really know what's wrong with you. And I think that has helped massively. Of, and it probably meant, you know, and led to me being very headstrong and pushing back because I knew myself and I knew what I did like and what I didn't like maybe before a lot of other people would have done just because I was very sick and I kind of had to deal with that. So I think it has helped a lot in starting Flexa, probably didn't help in my career and probably meant that I got sacked a lot. <laughs> and took up a mild level of drinking in a local pub. Um, <laughs> Morris, in terms, in, in terms of Morris, how you cope personally and, and how you dust yourself off when, when you've been knocked back, I suppose, because over this journey since you started, it can't have all been plain sailing. You can't have just you know ticked every box and done everything perfectly. Give me an example of when things didn't quite go to plan. Oh, there's loads, like loads and loads. Uh, I don't know where to start. Has anything ever gone to plan? No. Um, <laughs> it's such a cliche, the whole like, oh, startups are a roller coaster, but they actually, like they are, like you're so up and down. Um, and you just kind of get used to the fact that like Tuesday sometimes is terrible, but then Wednesday and Thursday are awesome and Friday's also crap again. And you just kind of get on with it. I'm trying to think of some of our worst stuff since we started. Oh, I think when we were closing out one of our funding rounds, didn't we have some panic stations at the end where we couldn't get it over the line? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. We were using DocuSign and then 
they didn't actually have the functionality to send to as many people as we needed. And we'd already got half the signatures, um, but we couldn't get the other half. So we had to switch to a different, um, like, sign, like digital signing provider, mm. go back out to all the investors that we'd already got the signatures from and redo the whole thing. Get them to sign the whole thing all over again. Quite, a, quite a few people on a Saturday, some very busy people who were not impressed. We were going through the whole process over and over again. But it just happens. It's like a, like there's probably three things a week where it just it's so annoying, and it's so different to a corporate job because it's there's some division. Whereas it's your thing. You're like, I have to send that letter of engagement and do the legal corrections, or we're not going to get paid. Like that kind of stuff is is yeah. very very frustrating. But you do get you do get used to it. You do get time. very used to it. Like I I always say that if if you'd have put off ourselves two years ago into a a week's work with our like what we do now you had, you'd have a breakdown but it's the it's the slow <laughs> be in the pub again. transition into the kind of stuff that you deal with that makes it bearable yeah it's, it's like, like you don't get plunged in it's like you're introduced to it slowly it's the hot frog and water thing although hopefully we won't boil at the end but like yeah. you know you, you go up one degree each time you, the frog doesn't care but if you put the frog into the hot water like ah, it's too hot you know? yeah. it's, that's, that's how it is, eventually though Morris I hate to break it to you the frog will care yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of learning to be an entrepreneur because so many people that I speak to on these podcasts, they actually had businesses before they went to university. They started something at university. They graduated. They started another business. You guys both seem to have, you know, whether you succeeded or you didn't succeed in your corporate career, um, and it's different for both of you, neither of you had businesses up until essentially two years ago. I mean, did you and can you learn how to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I, think, you de- I think you definitely can. One thing you shouldn't try to do when you're learning to be an entrepreneur is think that reading loads of books is going to help you because it's not. I have a very strong opinion on this. You see so many people be like, oh, I read Lean Startup and it changed my life. But it's like, no, it didn't. Go and do something. Um, but <laughs> I just, it just really, it really winds me up. Um, <laughs> but I think you can learn to be an entrepreneur, but I think the only way that you can learn to be an entrepreneur is by becoming an entrepreneur and, and learning as you go. I don't think you can take a course or read a book or try to try to learn the things that you'll need because you don't know what you'll need like one day is so different to the next and I think that you just have to be very accepting of of the fact it's going to be a massive unknown but also one of the most interesting things and steepest learning curves that you'll ever take. I would agree with all of that and I'd add a slightly different point. I think if you're coming from a corporate background going back to the generalist versus specialist theme I think if you do a more generous job it's more of a grounding so where I worked it was a hub and spoke model. You sat over a piece of the business. You had to do a bit of everything or know people who did a bit of everything. That made the entrepreneurial journey a little bit easier. I mean, still very hard, but a little bit easier. Whereas I think if you're in a super specialist job, you're back to kind of Molly's situation if you just have to learn as you go, if you come from something that was a very specialist background. So Molly, when going through a fund initially, or indeed, frankly, building a business, have you got any advice for any co-founders or founders that are looking to start up? We spent in the early days so long listening to other people's advice and we went down so many dead ends and wrong avenues and so my piece of advice to anybody is just don't listen to anybody's advice unless everybody is telling you the same thing in which case you're probably doing something wrong yeah if everybody's saying the same thing you're either a genius or absolutely useless and it's probably the latter yeah but if you listen to every single piece of personal advice particularly about fundraising you just go around in circles because everyone's got an opinion and bugger all people have a good one yeah, so especially on a this. especially with a product that people think they can relate to. Yes, very um, true. Very I always true. go back to my XC research days when we were sitting in a meeting with an asset manager, and I was with the Sainsbury's CEO, and he was talking about company results, and um, someone just goes, "Sorry, sorry, can I can I just stop you here? How how do you think Sainsbury's is going to be doing? Because my online delivery was late last week, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "That's a big sample size." What <laughs> but, but people do they they take their own personal very very subjective experiences and then they yeah. map it onto very very macro large problems and they ex- they then extrapolate that advice from that and it's never useful i had a chat with a guy really early when we were launching flex i think it was just when we met tim and he was a really nice guy he's a recruiter in dublin like friend of a friend kind of thing and i was talking about what flex was going to be and he was like okay i think i understand and then he went, what if someone came on to you like, and just said, hey, you know, we just want to hire through you or we just want to get, use your platform, but they actually weren't flexible at all. 
I could presume you'd still do it. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> I think that would somewhat ruin the USP of the brand. Yeah. Yeah. You turn down the like 10 grand not to read the business. All right. Yeah. That we probably would do that. So that kind of stuff where you just, you just have to ignore, just ignore it. it. Yeah, yeah. You just have to ignore it. Yeah. And, and that true. was the that was other business, which was, which was flexor brackets ish. And that was, yeah, it didn't quite get launched. Yeah. <laughs> flexor. If you give us money. Yeah. 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 In terms of scaling the business then overseas, because looking at, at the model as it stands, and again, this is from an outside point of view, the UK, the way the UK employs and works with individuals is totally different to the rest of the world, right? I mean, you take France for an example, Switzerland, whoever it might be. How does the flex of business model expand and grow depending on the countries you're operating in? Actually, relatively simply, I think if we'd have stuck with the job platform model, it would have been quite a lot more complicated. But fundamentally, we kind of strip it back to what our aim is, and that's to provide transparency in the global hiring market. And that means that a French company, you know, what do they offer? An American company, what do they offer in terms of flexibility? Like, it's relatively easy to blueprint on. We've already organically grown into, I think it's about 70 countries from a D2C perspective, and we've got companies headquartered in 12 different countries already. So clearly the model works for them, um, and they enjoy using Flexer even though our user base at the moment is predominantly UK and Europe, because that's where we spend money on on paid marketing. But we're expanding into Europe and the US um, later this year with paid marketing. We have quite an organic presence already. So I think it's just about that idea of transparency, not overcomplicating it. Like fundamentally, it amazes me that nobody had the idea for Flexor before us. It's a simple product, but sometimes simple products are the best. They solve the most crucial need. Yeah, I think it, it translates across borders better than I thought it would. Like we have these random organic pockets like Portugal, where you've like tons of users, tons they of links. Love Flexo, love Flexo. <laughs> Porto, Lisbon, tons of people message us all the time saying it's great, et cetera, et cetera. A few big companies in the Porto area who are, who are on Flexo as well. Yeah. It translates surprisingly well, yeah. um, even for, to countries where English isn't necessarily the first spoken language as well. Yeah, and we've organically acquired about two and a half thousand US users a week. And they're regularly on Flexer, and that keeps growing. With no marketing with spend. With no marketing spend at all. Yeah. You see, that, that, is, that is good growth, especially with no marketing spend and doing it completely organically. But did you guys wake up one day and go, right, actually, we're going to do international rather than the UK? Or was it something that just organically and, and naturally happened? Organic. It's organic. Yeah, it's organic. Um, it's interesting. I think it's probably a network effect thing through organic social, particularly LinkedIn, and to probably a lesser extent some of the other social platforms. A lot of our interest on the B2B side comes from companies who see their kind of like employer arrivals getting flexified, as we call it, and coming onto the platform. And then they'll get in contact with us and say, we'd really like to do that too. So that has like kind of a natural uh, flywheel kind of effect. And that, mm. that spread us out across different different internationals. It's a nice pre-validation as well, because if we've managed to move into those geographies organically, then we can be pretty confident that when we start spending money, it will it will resonate and we'll mm. be able to acquire users and companies in those geographies. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I bet your investors love the fact that you scaling organically because it's costing essentially nothing and looking at the next sort of 24 36 months as a brand and as a business then are you guys going to be pumping the new fund behind the international expansion what's the sort of plan for flexa in the long term i can only really <laughs> speak to 2022 because i don't like the forecast for it. it's like we're gonna have 50 million in revenue and 17 million hundred thousand users by the end of 2025 when you've got no idea what's going to happen what we'll do there molly is we'll stop the podcast we'll stop the podcast right there and that that will be your prediction and that's how it will end yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a number molly yeah no, exactly. Exactly. um but speaking to the end of 2022 which is where we're pretty confident we can get to based on sort of everything that we've done so far is we're hoping to get to two million users on the platform globally um focusing on UK, Europe, the US, Australia and New Zealand, because they have very similar flexible working penetrations to the UK and Ireland, where we have a really strong base. Um, and having about 800 flexified companies on the platform as well. That's the aim. And Maurice, does that add up with what you were going to say? Or is that news to you? That's why I'm, I'm redoing my financial model on the side. It's just like 800, is it? <laughs> uh, no, that, that's, that's a fair way to me. Um, I actually, yeah, like we'll, we'll start to move more and more outside of the UK to kind of come back to your initial question. Um, and as Molly said, earlier, like most of our spend, all our spend is UK and Ireland focused at the moment as we start to 
raise more money and spend more money, it'll start to focus more on other jurisdictions. But yeah, hopefully we'll have about 800 companies on the platform at the end of the year. It should be, should yeah, be great. Yeah, it should be great. You guys are the most chilled couple I think we've ever had on this podcast. It's just all very, it's seemingly very easy, but I imagine you're like ducks and paddling frantically under under the water. <laughs> Morris, what does, what, does, what does success look like to you? And you can't say... You can't say anything about money here. What does success look like about to you? God, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I think to remove money from the question, I think having a globally recognised brand in the space that we're in. So I think we want to get to a point over the next few years when people talk about flex in the same way they talk about Glassdoor, mm. and the the man or lady in the street would say, "Oh, I checked that company out in Flexa." In the same but way, way better than Glassdoor. But but better. We're not allowed to say the same, but better. But that's that's where we want to get to, really. And I think if we get to that point, that's what X revenue, that's what success would look like to me. Where it's just yeah. a household name and we're just synonymous with flexibility and good working good working cultures. Revenue's a byproduct of success, right, in terms of growth. So Molly, what is yours? Is yours gonna be not getting fired from your own business, maybe? Yeah, if Morris doesn't sack me, that's okay. <laughs> um, I think from a from a business perspective, I absolutely agree with Morris. I think from a longer term personal um perspective i think freedom success is is freedom um and ideally having the freedom and i won't talk about money freedom to have my old dogs home that's what i want <laughs> there you go morris you've not married a mad cat lady you're gonna marry a a, a crazy dog lady but you know there's something in it yeah. it's a crazy dog woman instead yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm on, on a weekly basis i get reminded about the old dogs home so yeah i'm familiar yeah <laughs> <laughs> no but go back to flex i love flex so there's only occasionally that businesses come on this podcast and we jump off the podcast and go right we need to go and sign up and have a look at this website this is one of them i'm going to get the guys to jump onto flex and be as brutally honest as possible about us and hopefully that'll help with our recruitment campaigns but if other businesses and employees and teams want to do the same where do they go guys so um if you're a company that's interested in finding out for free how flexible you are so it's all free the first stage will be kind of insights and tips and you can takes three minutes to do a little quiz then just go on flexa.careers and you'll see get flexified in the top um, and that'll take you straight to be able to do the quiz and if you are somebody who's looking for a genuinely flexible company and you're thinking about moving as more than half of the workforce is currently um, then go on Flexer as well and click browse companies perfect guys I've loved every minute I'm going to go and do exactly that thank you so much for joining me Pleasure. thank you thank you so much thanks for listening join me next week Wednesday at 8am on all podcast platforms where we'll be speaking to another leading entrepreneur show your support by subscribing as without you this podcast wouldn't happen produced by pinpoint media and sponsored by capsule cover this was a success is in the mind podcast take care